Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 37. I'll include verse 36 for uh, some small context. Peter concludes with, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptised, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. This uh, gospel of ours um, is called uh, God's Gospel. Paul says it's my gospel. And he also says that it's our gospel. Our gospel. It, you can say it's ours because it's the means by which God saved us. And it's also ours in that we are the ones who are to distribute that message as widely as possible. So I want to just ask a few questions of this uh, text today. And ask what is the nature of our gospel? What is the nature of it? Peter, as we read, had made this grand speech using several uh, arguments from scripture, from logic, and he, le he, he leads them with him to this grand conclusion that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. And the, he and the apostles uh, did this in the hope that God would use it to save people that day. And God did. God had purposed to save 3,000 people in one go. A, a huge uh, work of the Holy Spirit. So their hope was indeed realised. And so Peter gives for us in that short passage he gives for us several things that we can uh, learn from uh, we learn from him about what the gospel requires so the gospel's demands if you like he also includes there the gospel's extent just how far the gospel is to be preached and then he also talks about one or two of the rewards for those who obey the gospel. And that word reward should not trouble us. It is used by, it is used in scripture, it's used by the apostles. It's a reward. It's not according to works, but it's God's reward, if you like, by grace. And so, uh, we shall uh, 
just think for a short time about the gospel's demands then what what does the gospel require of the people that we share with peter mentions one or two things and the first of those is repentance repentance and so i've described this to you in a number of ways repentance i've described it as a change of mind a change of heart, a change of will, a change of direction, a turning from sin. And all these things are uh, collectively true of what repentance uh, is. However, there is of course a difference between sorrow over sin and a proper repentance. So imagine someone comes in here today and says, uh, I need to share this, you know, I've been, I've led a terrible life, I've been cruel to people, I've been a bully, I've taken advantage of people and I am ashamed of it. And maybe he starts to cry because of his sin. That is not necessarily godly repentance. There is a type of deep regret over sin which can be experienced without any work of God. So the scriptures tell us then that there is this godly sorrow. It's a sorrow that is brought about by a work of God, a godly sorrow, a godly repentance in fact. And that comes as a reaction to a work of God in the heart. And without that repentance there is no salvation. No salvation without proper repentance. Now, Peter uses the word repentance. He lays that out as necessary for salvation. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we see that faith, faith is the condition for salvation. Faith alone. And then yet somewhere else, we have repentance and faith. In fact, it's towards the end of the book of Acts. Repentance and faith together. And what we conclude from this is that they are used interchangeably. That is, when we say repentance, we mean faith as well. When we say faith, we mean repentance as well. And let me try to describe it like this. Uh, so I'm, I'm being fair when I say that faith is implied in what we read, even though it's not stated explicitly. It's like this. Uh, a proper repentance, if we think of it as a turning from sin, it, it, it's a turning from sin, it's an about turn with a faith in Christ at the end. So it must include faith in Christ. Likewise, a proper faith in Christ must have had a genuine repentance in the first place. A genuine turning around. That's why we say repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance and faith. Peter throws in baptism. Now, someone can be born again by God's Spirit, guaranteed forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and not be baptised. They might, they might pass away the, the week after. There might be some other reason that they can't be baptised and they are still eternally saved 
So we know that Peter's inclusion of baptism is not a condition for salvation. The baptism there is a matter of obedience. As soon as is possible, when someone turns to the Lord in repentance, they should be baptised. Poor Hillary had to wait how many years, Petal? Well, about 10 years, but that was circumstances. And so last year, after 10 years of waiting, Hillary was baptised. So there are circumstances which can get in the way. But normally, as soon as possible. I will say this, that it mentions here a conversion of 3,000 people. And they were baptised immediately. Now, in the early church, uh, there was a, a school set up for converts and they would be uh, catechised, right? So they would be taught for two to three years before they were eligible for baptism. Now we know exactly why the early church did that. They wanted to know that these people, A, were genuine and B, understood what they were doing with the baptism. But we cannot escape the fact that here they were baptised straight away. These 3,000 people likely did not know very much. Uh, they, uh, I would be very surprised if one of them understood the Trinity or anything else like that. So it was some kind of simple faith in Christ. It was a genuine repentance and so it was, it was, uh, it was done by them. They obeyed. I've described before proper baptism as a work of the Spirit. Proper baptism is a work of the Spirit. And the water ritual is a reflection of that. It's an outward expression of it. I, I will just add this about these gospel uh, demands of repentance and faith. It is that they are ongoing. When we think about repentance, yes, there is an initial turning from sin at conversion. But are we not constantly turning from sin? Why? Because by nature we are gravitating back to sin and we have to afresh turn from it and turn from it and get help from God in trying to steer clear of it. It's an ongoing thing. Martin Luther, the reformer, in, in the 16th century, when he, he presented these 95 propositions, one of them specifically said that this repentance was to be a daily, daily occurrence in the hearts of God's people. In the same way, faith, faith as a demand of the gospel, also has to be um, continual. Uh, faith is, faith has a number of aspects to it. One of them is a continual trust, a continual serving, and uh, you have a look at Colossians 1.23. Colossians 1.23 says, uh, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. It's preceded by this promise that we will be presented to God blameless if 
We continue in the faith. We continue in it. So, there is an ongoing aspect to the faith as well. It's not just at the beginning. The repentance of faith is to be, in a sense, carried on. And also with baptism, that baptism as a, the ritual is certainly a one-time initial event, but as an act of obedience, it is expected to be continued day by day, hour by hour, by God's people. We have to continue to obey. So these different parts of the gospel's demands for people to be saved are also, in a sense, to be continued. So the gospel has these demands. Our gospel has these, makes these requests, makes these uh, requirements. Sorry, of, of of the sinner. Then I want to talk also about the extent, the gospel's extent. Just how far is this gospel going to go? Just how far is it going to go? Firstly. Peter says that Peter says for the promise is for you. That's the first thing he says. It's for you. It's for all the people listening. Thousands of them. This promise is for you. They understood what the word promise meant because throughout their own scriptures there were these hints and promises of some kind of future that was far better than what they had been used to. It was in fact a brand new covenant that was superior to the old covenant they uh, had worshipped under. And so there was this understanding of a promise, something good on the horizon. Most of them had the wrong idea of what this future was going to be, this kingdom of God. But still, they were, they, were, they were glad to hear the word promise. And I imagine they were, were also glad to hear Peter say, not just for you, but for your children too. You see, uh, in the Jewish mindset, uh, these, uh, these benefits of God, these blessings of God, were for them and their children, and their children. It was all to do with those who belonged to Abraham by blood, if you like, and these blessings were carried on to their children, not, not other peoples, their children, not other nations, this nation. And at this point, they were no doubt glad to hear that, well, they get this better covenant, but things are pretty much as they were. It's all ours. We don't have to share God with the rest of the world. It's ours. And then Peter starts to maybe spoil it for them. Peter says, all who are afar off, all who are afar off. I don't know at this point whether Peter fully understood the implications of what he was saying, because Peter yet does not understand just how far this is going to go, how big this is going to get. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says all who are afar off. Now perhaps the Jews would still be thinking, well, he means, he means us Jews who are 
far away, on holiday, living abroad, scattered. Maybe he's still talking about the Jews and then finally Peter ruins it and says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, everyone. And little did Peter know that this was going to go global. This movement was going to go global. By talking about it being a gospel for this generation and that generation, it shows that the gospel transcends time. It's for all times and all ages. And by saying that it's in, it's going to be preached in other places as well, it means that it's not limited geographically. So in fact, the gospel spans all generations and all locations. And here now we come to perhaps the most important part of that sentence. Peter lays down a condition, an explanation of how this is going to come about. The gospel is going to be the means of salvation for everyone who the Lord God calls to himself. All who the Lord God calls to himself. Elsewhere, this call is described as God drawing people to Christ. It's the same thing. And it says that no man or woman will ever trust in our gospel unless the Father first sets his sights on them and draws them to Christ. And that tells us again, folks, that the work of salvation is initiated and continued by God. He is sovereign in those things. He chooses people before the world is made. That's election. He draws up a list, if you like. And then in time, he makes sure that every one of those people have an encounter with the gospel. And furthermore, God also sends his spirit into those elect people's hearts and he draws them to Christ. And they repent and they are saved. And it has to be said, friends, that God has the power to, to elect everyone and to place his spirit into everyone's hearts and to draw everyone. He could have done that and he chose not to. It says here in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. It says, those whom he, that's God, those whom God predestined, that's at the beginning, he also called in time. And those whom he called, he also justified or saved. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
He is in absolute control of the whole matter of salvation from start to finish. And so the gospel will go all over the planet, and it has, and it will reach everyone who the Lord intends it to. We've looked at what our gospel requires of people and what our gospel is to do. It is to be extended. And then also, I want to think about the gospel's rewards. And think about the benefits to those who believe in our gospel. And the first one is mentioned by uh, Peter, which is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. We're all so familiar with that very phrase that it can become meaningless almost to us. It's, it's very difficult to get a sense of the strength of what's gone on there with forgiveness because we are so accustomed to it. But you know, the entire human race should have been trodden under the foot of God in wrath. The entire human race. Had he saved one person or ten people, then he deserves all the praise and glory for being merciful to so many people who didn't deserve it. But it's not one or ten or a thousand or a million. It is untold millions. And so even though few walk on that narrow way which leads to eternal life, few tells us it's a minority in the human race. But that few added up over the thousands of years amounts to untold hundreds of millions perhaps of people. No wonder it's described in the scriptures in Revelation, uh, a multitude that no, no one could number, innumerable. And so God didn't have to, but he made exceptions. He made exceptions, he made exceptions to his wrath and he made, he made people uh, alive and forgave them. What else? What other benefits do, does this gospel bring to those who obey? Well, Peter says you will receive the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit. Now, it has to be said that the Holy Spirit works in different ways, in different places at different times. We cannot go back and study how the Holy Spirit moved in King Saul and try, and try to you know, reproduce that in our own experience. That's not what it was meant to, to, to be used for, that scripture. And so I would say the same thing is the case here. I'm not going to start denying that God could reproduce some of these miraculous gifts today. I'm not going to deny that he could do that. The question is, does he in this age? Has he chosen to? I, um, I can only go by my own experience and what I've seen in my own life uh, with people who claim to be exercising these very miraculous gifts. And what I've read about throughout church history, and I've studied church history from the year AD 70, virtually up to the present, and I've not yet found any convincing situation where these miraculous gifts have taken place. And if God wants to use us 
to heal people and speak in foreign languages, well, I would, I would be happy, of course, because God's used me in that way. But what the point I'm getting to here is that there are works of the Spirit which are not meant for all ages. And here uh, I see uh, that these gifts of the Spirit, they seem to be temporary. Some of these works of the Holy Spirit, it seems, came to an end. But we'll see. One thing we can say which this gift of the Spirit gives is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Paul gives us a list, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, there's nine things in it, and like all lists in the Scriptures, we shouldn't dive into a list and assume it's an exhaustive list that there's nothing else could be involved, because this is the list God gave us. Lists don't work like that. They are flexible. Paul is giving us an overview of the type of things that mark the believer who has received the Spirit. And so he starts, love. The one who has the Spirit loves not only the lovely people, but the unpleasant people. It's a love that makes no sense. Loving those who are nasty to us makes no sense. Love. And he mentions joy and peace. And that makes no sense that if we are suffering in the body or suffering with persecution from outside, that we can retain joy. But it's true. This is how we know. And it's a great gift. It is a marvellous gift to receive the Holy Spirit. The, the next... The next benefit is not here in, in, in the passage, but when those 3,000 were saved and added to, added to the number of the church, they became citizens of a new kingdom, a kingdom of heaven, a heavenly kingdom, if you like. They became citizens. And yes, they still had their passports to the world, but they now, had a new, they now have a new passport to the kingdom of heaven. They were now citizens of this new kingdom. And that old passport, one day, will be thrown away. Because that old world, this old world, will no longer exist. And then we will exist in the same kingdom, but in a very, very different uh, surrounding, surroundings. So, the kingdom, it's a wonderful blessing. It's not here, but it's implied, isn't it? Citizens of God's kingdom. And that itself leads us naturally to think about life everlasting. It's, it's almost too good to be true. That God would give us a day that is perfect. I'm sure one or two of you have felt you've had a perfect day. Maybe once in your life you've had this perfect day. Or something close to it. And God will give you a perfect day. And then he will add another. And that will be perfect. And although eternity might be scary for some people, I can tell you folks that uh, if you are having a perfect day, you will not desire to escape that life. You'll want it to go on and on and on and on. And we will be blessed 
and happy constantly in this everlasting life. Dave will be able to run round like a young man again. We will all be friends. We will all be able to speak together and enjoy each other's company and fellowship untainted by those things which uh, poison our fellowship. We'll be able to spend time with the Lord himself. It's a wonderful thing, the gospel uh, that we proclaim. And so we share. We share the gospel of repentance and faith. We encourage converts to be baptised and continue in a life of service. We, uh, we share this gospel indiscriminately, indiscriminately, as widely as we can. We tell people about forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And then, when all is done, we trust in God. We trust in God's irresistible grace by which he will overcome the rebellion of people and he will save many of them. The, the 3,000 converts, that's very impressive. Very impressive indeed. 3,000 in one day. Have we ever seen anything like that? Think on this. The only converts to Christ on that day the only converts on the whole planet was the ones that Peter was talking to. There was no people being saved in South America, North America, Asia, or anywhere else that the gospel hadn't reached. 3,000, that's planet-wide. Fast forward to today, where the gospel has gone worldwide, where people are being saved every day. And it may surprise you pleasantly surprised you to learn that an estimate is that there are maybe between 50 and 100,000 people every day converted to Christ. 50 to 100,000 every day, including today. We won't argue about the nature of the conversions, that some of them will be dodgy and some of them will be joining strange sects, but still, amongst them, tens of thousands of additions to the church every day. Friends, we don't have to look back at Pentecost and lament that we don't see those days. We are in those days. We are in better days, and God is working. This is an exciting gospel that we have. It's, uh, it's life-changing, and it's God-glorifying. And this is our gospel. This is the nature of our gospel. Amen.